You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people and that means that when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. Our passages this morning are from Matthew chapter 28 from verses 16 to 20 and Isaiah chapter 52 from verses 7 to 10. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Starting with Matthew chapter 28 from verses 16 to 20. The eleven disciples travelled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isaiah chapter 52 from verses 7 to 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald, who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together. For every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Uh, Just a reminder about what we're doing here over this series. Uh, Normally we work through books of the Bible and passages of the Bible, uh, but each year we take one series to look at one doctrine of the Bible. And this year it's all about mission. What is our mission? What on earth are we here for? And we started a few weeks ago by looking at Genesis 1, which is the prototype of God's mission. What what was God's mission that he gave humanity before sin even entered this world? And we realize that actually the mission is still the same. He called Adam and Eve and he calls all of us to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Our mission is not fundamentally one of creation care, good though that is, Our mission is to see people from every tribe and nation worshipping Jesus as king. We then moved on and saw in Isaiah the picture of God's kingdom, which is the church. That that we are called to be a light to the nations. The world ought to be able to look at the church and see our acts of justice and righteousness and love for one another. And so be drawn to the city of God and to put their trust in Jesus as their king. The wonderful news, I said last week we had, um, as a result of that um, mission uh, week on compassion, we had uh, eight compassion kids sponsored. Uh, This week, apparently, we're now up to 22, so that's really good. 
to see the number of us as a church uniting together uh, to be that picture and that light to the nations. And then last week, we looked at Mark 1 to see uh, Jesus as the prince of our salvation. You see, before we can understand our mission to the world, we need to understand God's mission to us. And that mission is accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Today, what are we looking at? A classic passage, the Great Commission. I want to tackle that question head on. What on earth are we here for? Doesn't matter what job you have. Doesn't matter what you do day to day. What is the one mission that God has given every single one of us who follow him? That's our question today. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to look at God's answer to that great question. God of the nations, we know that you have a heart for the nations, and you long to see people from every tribe worship your son. And so this day, God, reorient our hearts, cast our eyes upon your son, help us see our lives in light of the risen son. These things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. What are you doing with your life? I, I don't mean that in a... Look, if you feel more convicted by that question, that's on you. Right? Like, what, what are you doing with your life? When you look at the individual Lego pieces that make up your life, what, what exactly are you trying to build here? Put another way, uh, if your life is a puzzle, what picture is on the box cover? Is it the picture of an endless summer at the sea or carving down the slopes of the snow? Is it the picture maybe of you sitting in the corner office, standing in the operating theatre? Or is it the picture of a happy family, living in a big house with ten dogs, White picket fence. What, what exactly are you doing with your life? You know, I, I suspect that for many of us, our lives are actually determined and set by defining moments. Think about uh, the person who becomes a nurse or a doctor because they're so impacted by the difference that nurses and doctors made on their parents when they went through some form of illness. I remember a few years ago, I went, I went back to Malaysia, and, and we went and visited my great uncle. He's a, he was a pastor uh, in Kelantan, and we met there someone who grew up in abject poverty. And because of his experience growing up in poverty, he vowed that his children would never go without. So he worked so hard every day as a business owner for his family's financial security. That, that was what set his life. And I suspect that for some of us here, the moment that set the course of our lives actually happened before we were born. For some of us, it happened when our parents moved to this country. And in many ways, our life was set from that very moment, right? We were expected to live in such a way that vindicates that decision. Work hard. Succeed. Prove. It was worth it. Our lives largely are set by defining moments. And friends, today I want to suggest that as Christians, the defining moment of our life also happened before we were born. The defining moment of our life happened when Jesus rose from the dead. The defining moment of human history and of our lives is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to say it doesn't really matter what you do for a day job. 
In the grand scheme of things, it is totally irrelevant whether you're a lawyer, a cleaner, a teacher. You know, there's a lot of things that God cares a lot about. And if I can humbly suggest, that's not one of them. Because what God really cares about is how you and I live in light of his risen son. Whatever you might do for a living, all of us who follow Jesus are here for the one same reason. All of us here have the one same mission. It's a mission defined by the resurrection of Jesus. Boss, can I tell you, the resurrection, it changes everything. If there's one thing you can guarantee in life, it's this. All of us, without exception, will one day die. We hate to think about it, don't we? So we numb ourselves on mindless entertainment. But when we're confronted by death, it's as if we're shocked and pulled back into reality. And here's the hard truth. No one, no one in human history has ever defeated death. In in Matthew 27, if you go a chapter back, the apostle is trying to show us one simple point. Just like every person who has ever lived, Jesus really died. In that sense, he's, he's no different from any of us. In verse 50 of chapter 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. In verse 54, the, the Roman centurion certifies Jesus as dead. In verses 57 to 61, Joseph of Arimathea, he takes Jesus' corpse and he puts it in a tomb and he seals that tomb shut with a giant stone. And in verses 62 to 66, the governor stations soldiers to guard that tomb. Can you see what's happening here? Jesus is dead. And his body isn't going anywhere. Nothing's coming in. And nothing's going out. And in the first verse of Matthew 28, the two Marys come to that tomb with the very clear expectation that Jesus is dead. All of us die. And once we're dead, that's it. People don't come back from the dead, do they? But let's say that someone did. Let's say there was a human being just like us who defeated death, who rose from the grave, who resurrected to new life. If that were true, would that not be the most decisive moment of human history? Wouldn't it change the calculus of what we're doing with our lives? Wouldn't it relativize all of our priorities and reorder all the things that we value and live for? Because if death is not the end, this life is not everything. You don't. Only live once. Look at what happens in verses 1 to 10 of Matthew 28. The two Marys, they they come to Jesus' tomb and they expect to find his dead body. But instead, look at what they see. They see an angel of the Lord. His appearance is like lightning and his clothing is as white as snow. Friends, this isn't a hallucination. It's not a figment of their imagination. No, this is something supernatural. It's something heavenly. It's an act of God. 
And, and the earth quakes as creation buckles under the gravity of this moment. And in verse 5, I love what the angel says. Just imagine being one of those two Marys coming to the tomb. You're expecting to find Jesus' dead body. The earth quakes. You see an angel and then you hear these words, don't be afraid. <laughs> because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. You see, friends, just like all of us, Jesus really died. But unlike any of us, Jesus has risen. Do you, do you know what that means, right? Just think about this. Remember a few weeks ago, the Garden of Eden, that, that kingdom of God, that, that temple of God, that world of perfect justice and love. Eden, where, where God's glory fills the earth. Eden, where the nations come to worship the Lord. Uh, Eden, that world without sickness, without sorrow, without depression, that world without death. Eden, that, that life where death is defeated. Friends, I want you to know that that is a life that Jesus has now secured. It's a life that you and I can experience through him. We can look at the risen Lord Jesus, reigning in glory, having defeated death, and say, what is true of him can be true of me as well. It's about six years since my grandmother died. I know people have all sorts of relationship with their grandparents, but you've got to understand that um, I never met either of my uh, grandfathers. My grandmother moved here roughly the year I was born. She raised me like a second mother. I remember uh, after school, she would walk to school and take me home and would stop at Macca's every day because I couldn't make the journey back. <laughs> I now realize that was only about 100 meters. Uh, the thing about her, right, she was so active, so independent. I remember when she was declining in age, I told her, I said, well, you can't live upstairs anymore. You need to move downstairs because it's a tragedy waiting to happen. And she just refused to move downstairs. So I just moved her stuff one day. <laughs> Every day, she'd, she'd take the 109 tram to Box Hill. She'd share the gospel with total strangers. There's a lady now at our old church who's a Christian because my grandmother shared the gospel with her on the tram. She'd always have her Friday morning Bible study group. And then they'd all go to have yum cha for lunch, right? She was, she was unstoppable. But death is inevitable. I remember in her final years, I'd spend hours sitting by her bedside. Um, and she, I remember she couldn't talk. Her, her mind was 100% there, but she, she just couldn't talk. She wouldn't move. Where it was very limited movement, and she'd just lie there. And I remember she just every night she'd cry, um, and her hand would point up, and I knew what she meant. She longed to be with her Lord. And one day she was. Do you know what the hardest part about her death was? It wasn't her decline, it wasn't even her death. We knew that was coming. What was hardest is what came after. Nothing. I was never going to sit by her bedside again. I was never going to hear her voice again. Can I say the hard... I felt guilty a few months later 
starting to forget what her voice sounded like. What is hardest is the deafening finality of death. But not anymore. Not anymore. Because Jesus is risen. And because he lives, my grandmother who trusted in him will one day walk through that door. She will sit by my side. And she'll speak words that I for so long have not heard. And can I say, how is that not the most significant news in the world? How does that, how does that not change everything? If it's true that Jesus really defeated death, wouldn't you want everyone, everyone to come and see what's possible? And it's what the, angels, the angel invites the women to do. Come and see the place where he lay. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that is exactly what God is inviting you today to come and do, to come and see. And can I tell you, if you come and see, what you will find is an empty tomb. Because if Jesus has risen, can I say he really is who he said he is? He really is the Son of God. He really is the King of the nations. He really is the Savior of the world. And if Jesus has risen, then he really did what he said is done. He's really defeated death. He's really died for our forgiveness. He's really spared us from judgment. He's really reconciled us to God. Can I say, if that's true, how could you not follow him? How could you not worship him? How could you not love him as your savior, your king, and your God? It's the best news in the world. And for those of us who already believe it, can I say, if God is calling the nations to come and see, he's calling us to go and tell. Go and tell the world that he is risen. Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Verse 10, go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Friends, can you see the resurrection changes everything? How could we not want everyone to know that death is not the end? How could we not want everyone to know that, that depression, disability, disaster and disease don't have to define their lives? How could we not want everyone to know that because Jesus lives, they can live as well? How could we not want everyone to know that they can escape God's judgment and enter that kingdom of perfect justice and love, that Edenic world of eternity? How could you not want that for everyone? I don't care what I do for a job on one level, right? That's my job. I don't care what I get paid for. I'll do that for free. I want to spend every moment of my life gripped by that mission to go and tell the world that he is risen. Here's the crazy thing. Not everyone sees that as good news. Not everyone sees that a good news. Just, just look at how the world will respond. It's verses 11 to 15. The guards discover the empty tomb. They report everything that's happened to the priests. And the priests are terrified. They're terrified that this news will reach the governor's ears. So this is what they do. They hatch a plan. They pay off the soldiers and they tell them to spread a rumor. Verse 13. Say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. 
You see, friends, for the soldiers, the priests, and the governor, there's a vested interest they have in rejecting the resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrection spells the end of every worldly power. Can I read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, 24? This is what the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus' resurrection. Then comes the end. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. I love this. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Friends, the Bible in the next verse calls death the last enemy. Death is the single greatest force that democratizes every human being. It doesn't matter whether you're a prince or a pleb, all of us meet the same end. But if Jesus has defeated death, if he has conquered the last enemy, can I say that makes him the king over every other enemy. It makes him the king over every power. It makes him the king over every person. That's good news for us. But anyone who insists on retaining control of our own lives will be humbled. Because Jesus is the risen king. Not you. And not me. He alone has defeated the power of death. He alone has authority over every square inch of this world and every square inch of our lives. None of us can insist on being the ruler of our own lives because whether we like it or not, Jesus, not us, he is the risen king. And here's the even better news. The resurrection means that all of us who follow Jesus, we don't need to live in fear. I mean, think about it, right? I don't have to be afraid of this world because what's the worst that it can do to me? Kill me? Please, death has been defeated. I don't have to fear about missing out on the experience of this world because in eternity, I get to enjoy a new Eden forever. I don't have to fear not having money or marriage, status or success because in the end, we get it all and more. And we don't have to fear that life is passing us by as everyone moves on without us. Because Jesus promises a life far greater than this. I mean, that doesn't make sense to our world, right? If we Christians really live in light of the risen sun, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And that will agitate this world. <laughs> it will agitate this world when we do not bow the knee to his idols when we do not value what it values. Friends, we have a mission to a world that so desperately needs the gospel and yet at the same time is so determined to reject it. You know, one of the greatest curses on our society is indifference. Indifference. So many of us just don't care. Let's face it, we look out at the brokenness of our world and perish the thought, we even hear about the news of the resurrection. And what's our reaction? Yeah. All right. Go home. There's another Sunday. Can I, can I, they just, I don't, 
as a, like in my brain, there's just like a category error. I don't quite get that. I mean, like, if you really get the resurrection, indifference is not an option. Maybe you'll reject it because it threatens everything that you hold dear. I pray to God that you won't. But can I say, if you don't reject it, you're left with only one option, and that's to obey it. It's how the church and we must obey. Look, in verses 16 to 20, the 11 disciples arrive at the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And he gives them the Great Commission. He tells us what we should be doing with our lives. Firstly, notice in verse 18, Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, I used to think that when Jesus said that, he said it to assure us of success, to motivate us in the face of opposition. But the truth is, the more I look at it, the more I realize Jesus' authority means his commission is a command. His commission is a command. He's not saying, because I have authority, this is what you can do. He's saying, because I have authority, this is what we must do. Friends, these are the orders of our king. They're not negotiable. It is not possible for us to follow our king but reject his command. Secondly, that command is to make disciples of every nation, to make followers of the risen king, to bring people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language into the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling us to do what Adam was meant to do, to fill the earth with his glory. He's calling us to do what Israel was meant to do, to to extend Eden to the world and to draw the nations in. He's calling us to do what Jesus did, to call people to turn away from living in sin, to turn to living with Jesus as their king, to enter his kingdom of justice and love. Thirdly, we make disciples by doing two things. Number one, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And number two, by teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. How do you make disciples? You baptize and you teach. Baptize the nations, teach the nations. What does he mean by that? He wants us to bring the nations into his kingdom. That's what he means by baptizing. And he wants us to build them up in that kingdom. That's what he means by teaching. He wants us to teach followers of Jesus what it looks like to live in his kingdom. What it looks like to live that new risen resurrection life. Some of you who came to Ancon a few weeks ago will remember what Peter Jensen said. If I moved to New Zealand, a lot of talk about New Zealand over the last few weeks, if I moved to New Zealand and become a Kiwi citizen, that's who I now am. I've entered a new country. I'm now a new person. But I now need to become what I already am. I now need to start speaking the language. Well, they don't speak English there. (laughs) Learning the history. Entering into a new culture. I need to be more like Israel and more like Mac and Matthew and Holly. I need to own that. I can't be a citizen of New Zealand while still living as an Australian. I need to become what I already am. And friends, that's what the Lord Jesus calls us to do. Not to become more like a Kiwi, though we love them, right? Instead, to become more like a citizen of his kingdom. To bring people into his kingdom... 
and to build them up as citizens of his kingdom, to help them become what they already are. Friends, that's our mission. That's what all of us must be doing with our lives. That's what our church must be doing, right? When we think about planting an afternoon congregation, we're not doing it for the comfort of a congregation size. We're doing it so that more people might come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And here's how we do it. Go and tell. Go and tell. You may have heard it said that Francis of, St. Francis of Assisi once said, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. There's only two problems with that. Firstly, he never said it. And secondly, it's wrong. To say preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words, is as stupid as saying feed the hungry always, if necessary, use food. You cannot preach the gospel without using words. You cannot preach the gospel unless you open your mouth and words come out. Our mission is not wordless action or silent advocacy. Our mission is gospel proclamation. Look at Romans 10. Paul asks this question. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe in him without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I mean, it's, it's kind of unavoidable, isn't it? It's uncomfortably, unambiguously clear. We must speak so the gospel might be heard. I know my own heart. I have the best laid excuses for why I will not speak. Some of us practice, as I said the other week, what we call lifestyle evangelism. We say words are cheap. I'll let my life do the talking. But the problem is most of the time our life doesn't do the talking and neither do our mouths. Our lives must do on the gospel, but our lips must also proclaim it. We can't be all lifestyle but no evangelism. Others of us will speak about Jesus, even at work and publicly with our friends, but in a very different way. The words we'll speak will not be, Jesus is the risen king. We will not call this world to repentance because we probably don't want to offend people. So we'll say something like this, Jesus is good for human flourishing. Jesus makes us better people. He gives our lives meaning and significance. He offers us peace and purpose. Now, those things are true, but can I say, those words alone offer little hope and no assurance. For though they might be partially true, they are comforting for this life only. You see, I suspect beneath it all really are two things that drive our reluctance to speak. Fear and how people might react when we speak the gospel. And shame and how people might see us when we speak the gospel. Sure, I'll be a Christian. I just don't want to be that sort of Christian. Unless you think that I'm exempt from this, do you know what I dread doing most? Getting a haircut. Because you have to talk. And inevitably, what question comes up? Oh, so what do you do for a living? Can I say... In my heart of hearts, shame of all shames, I don't want to say what I do for a living. 
I feel that pressure. I'm like, please chop faster, right? Like, it's, it's quite hard. So I go see Chris in Box Hill who doesn't speak English. It's okay, right? Like, it's, 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 it's tough. I wish I could say that I was bold and unashamed in speaking the gospel, but it's hard. I, I discipline myself. I say when I'm on a flight, I must do mid-flight in-air evangelism. But I always time it to start half an hour before we land. Because if I start too early, I run out of gas and I don't know what to say for the rest of that trip. Until your flight gets delayed, you have to circle around Sydney Airport for an extra hour. I've got nothing. But it's pathetic when you think about it. All bravado that I can stand up here and say this. But when I'm on a flight, I'm a coward. (laughs) Friends, Jesus is the risen king of the world. No one can stand in his way. Not even my hairdresser. And he promises that in my fear and in my shame, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel. So let me ask and ask that question yet again. What are you doing with your life? I mean, Jesus has risen, so we can never be the same again. We can't live as if the resurrection has not happened. Our lives cannot look the same as the lives of those who have not risen with Christ. And if that's true, can I say, all the things that we value most must belong not to this world, they must belong to the world to come. We need to become what we already are. We need to use our lives for this one mission to go and tell. So what are you doing with your life? Maybe you're someone like I was and if I admit still am. Someone who gives too much of their selves to their work. So you might hear all this and go, Adam, it's all a bit too much. Right, I get it. It's a cert- you picked the wrong context. Sunday sermon, bad context. Preachers at a missions conference, right? It belongs to the pastors and missionaries, not everyday people like me. But do you notice who the Lord Jesus commissioned before he even commissioned his disciples? It was the two Marys. Everyday people just like you and me. You see, we all have different occupations, but in the end, we all share the one same preoccupation. That mission is much more than whatever you do for a day job. It's funny, isn't it? I see people, and I, again, I used to be one of them, so I'll put my hand up, right? People who have such detailed career plans. You know, they've mapped it out over the next five to ten years, they know exactly what move they'll make. Overbuilt LinkedIn profiles that no one reads but recruiters and other socially insecure people. Doctors who study their whole lives to become the orthopedic surgeon. Now, if you want to become an orthopedic surgeon, go forth, right? But listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. I quoted him last week. I'll quote him again. He's the man of the series. There are many whom I've had the privilege of meeting whose tombstone might as well bear the grim epitaph, born a man, died a doctor. The greatest danger which confronts the medical man is that he may become lost in his profession. Now, you can delete doctor and sub in whatever it is that we do, right? That's my sin. It is just as wicked to be born a man and die a pastor. What are you doing with your life? Are you applying yourself to God's mission as much as you are to your career? 
Let me ask, and I'm careful on this one, because I know I'm young. Do we waste our lives by pursuing a comfortable retirement? Again, I said I'm young, so I want to be respectful about this, right? I've got a long road ahead of me, and people will say that. Look, Adam, when you're there, you'll say something very different. So let me uh, blame my good friend. Uh, Mike Rader, who you know is a preacher around Melbourne, this is what he told me. He said, Adam, I once preached at a church where there's an old Baptist pastor there, and when he was preaching, he got, Mike wasn't there at the time, but he goes, this old Baptist pastor was in the pulpit and mid-sermon suffered a massive heart attack and died. Right there, in the pulpit. And Mike said to me, it's sad. It's tragic. Every death is sad. And he looked up at me and said, but Adam, as a preacher, what a way to go. (laughs) In the saddle, all guns blazing, all the way to glory. And he said to me, you know, one of the great tragedies that he finds in life is the grey nomad. Is the person who retires and says, leave me alone, I've worked hard, I've saved up, I can enjoy my retirement. Friends, can I say, uh, we might retire from our profession, but we must never retire from this mission. Of course, I know personally I lack integrity in saying that, so when I get there, you can remind me. But I do wonder most of all, whether between our work and our retirement, whether we actually end up wasting our lives by trying to get everything out of life. By trying to get everything out of life. So many of us think that the greatest tragedy of life would be to miss out on all it has to offer. To not own our own home. To not get married. To not have kids. To not have a lot of money. To not be able to go on that overseas holiday. To not own the latest technology. To, have, to not have that endless weekend by the sea. So many of us are living for this life only. So many of us live as if there is this life only. So many of us live as if the sun has not risen. But he has. And that changes everything. And it changes how we see the pleasures of this life. You see, in light of the sun, the things of this earth and this world grow strangely dim. I know how I feel about this. I look at people who give up so much for the gospel. I look at um, the, the unmarried woman who goes to a closed country as a missionary. And I feel sorry for her. It's ridiculous. I shouldn't. She is to be most envied of all. She is most blessed of all, for she is living her resurrection life. You see, you can have nothing in this world and yet actually have everything. Don't waste your life by trying to squeeze everything out of this life. My own great fear in my own heart is that if I live as if I am not raised with Christ, am I really? You see, you might never own a home. You might never be married. You might never go on another holiday for the rest of your life. And I want to say it's okay. The resurrection life is a life of eternal contentment. Satisfied that we can miss out on the fleeting joys of this life. Because we are confident in our eternal glories to come. That is what we have. Friends, what are you doing with your life? Jesus has risen so our lives can never be the same ever again.
And for some of you, can I say, that will mean giving your life for the sake of the gospel. It will mean giving your everything for the sake of the gospel. It will mean walking away from your job and your studies to give yourself to be a pastor, a gospel worker, a missionary somewhere in some place. God would have it of you. But can I say, even if that's not you, it doesn't matter. But it's still the one same mission that all of us have to go and tell the world that he is risen. Here's the fundamental question that you need to ask. How are you living your life in light of the risen sun? How are you living your life in light of the risen sun? Can I pray? God, turn our eyes upon you. Help us see that the risen Lord Jesus reigns as king over the world. We ask in your kindness and your mercy that you might give us such a great vision of your resurrection so that we might apply ourselves to these things, that we might see people from every tribe and every nation come to worship the Lord so that people from every tribe and nation might bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. Do these things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.